I'm Jim Juno, and this is The Juno Files, where we talk about movies, television, and everything in between. It's been said that cops have the best stories, and Bill Kassar's 30 years in the law enforcement profession unveils yarns gathered from the beginning of his career in 1978 through 2007. Along the way, he has met and was befriended by Doris Day, Terry Melcher, Phyllis Coates, and got married at Joan Fontaine's home. Bill's memoirs tell of his growing up in San Jose before the city became known as the capital of Silicon Valley, and traces his career steps that led him to the beautiful Monterey Peninsula of California to work for the sheriff's office. Bill's new book, Hollywood in Monterey, Chronicles of a Cop, is published by Bear Manor Media, and I talked with him about it. Hello, Bill Kassara. Welcome back to the Juno Files. My pleasure. My pleasure. I think it's my second or third time back. I believe so. Third time, I believe. We talked yeah. about your talked about your book about Vernon Dent, and then also with Ted Healy. Uh, Correct. But you you've got a new book out now called Hollywood on Monterey, uh, Chronicles of a Cop, and this is basically your life story as well as the people you have met along the way, isn't it? Yes, it is, yes. It's an autobiographical uh, perspective. Now, Hollywood on Monterey. This is a – now, Monterey is, uh, would you call, a neighborhood out in uh, in California? Yeah, it's it's a unique peninsula. Uh, There's a whole Monterey County, and – in that county is is uh, Carmel, Pebble Beach, Big Sur, Salinas. It's Steinbeck country for for uh, people that are into his uh, novels, and uh, you know the delightful cities that encompass uh, most of the uh, Pacific Ocean between San Luis Obispo County and Santa Cruz County up north and. It goes inland. It's a huge county. It's it's about twice as big as Rhode Rhode Island. Wow. The state. Wow. So so and you were and you were a police officer there for how many years? Twenty uh, or? I was uh, a deputy sheriff there from 1981 until 2007. Twenty six years. Yeah. Yeah, and before that, I worked. I grew up in San Jose, California, just 75 miles north of Monterey, and I uh, got my degree from San Jose State and became a records technician for the police department there. And from that, I went on to uh, Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department. I worked the jail. And so I've, I uh, didn't care for that too much. I, I'm a, I deal with people... Uh, <laughs> I, I like people, so I went to uh, the Monterey County Sheriff's, and it was, uh, I think it fit me like a glove. Now, the story also is about the celebrities that you, have, that you were lucky enough to meet along the way. And i got to ask you now, 
back before you became a police officer, back when, were you still in college when you met Clint Eastwood? Oh, no, no. Uh, I was in college in San Jose. Oh. And so you're talking in the in the 70s. Right. We're playing and Misty so, for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, saw the movie when it came out in 71. But I didn't have a chance to meet Clint until uh, I was a deputy sheriff for a number of years. And then, of course, of the profession, uh, these celebrities, they – they all law enforcement knows who they are. We don't go out of our way to uh, meet them, but uh, they they uh, they like to get to know the local deputies, and and it's good for us too to know if if uh, they're being uh, protected or need protection. But tell me one thing: you uh, now some of the people you've met before you became a police officer. The Clint Eastwood story I love because you were going to show the movie, Play Misty for Me, uh-huh. and unfortunately that was the same day as 9-11 in 2001. And, yes. And then all of a sudden, y'all couldn't find the movie because it was being shipped on that very day. Yes, it was, <laughs> it was just a catastrophe. You know, we don't have a right to complain about it uh, compared to World Affairs. Right. But uh, we had it set up as a big party. We had Universal uh, Studios who supplied the only 35-millimeter uh, uh, print of that. They put it on the plane, and uh, we were going to thread it and show it on, a, on that particular day. And, uh, it, well, airlines were grounded. Nothing in the air, so we had this uh, a lot of uh, wind behind our sails with uh, people interested in in coming from all over, and so uh, we went through hoping it would be found at the last second, and we had to improvise a bit. It's <laughs> one of the first times I've ever. Now Clint Eastwood even said you used the DVD. Which back in 2001, I guess, was a pretty new technology. Um, and he was even impressed with the quality that was being shown, wasn't he? Yes. It, it, uh, it, we uh, used the DVD. It was freshly printed. And Universal was uh, taking advantage of a tie-in. It was the 30th anniversary of Play Misty for me. So one of our people in the film commission, this nonprofit organization, had edited certain scenes in the movie. So when we did our uh, mas- magical Misty tour <laughs> on a bus, we we had uh, edited scenes where, as you're driving along, you could see what was going on as you're passing it. So uh, we did have that, but we had no intention of showing. That DVD, we were we were counting on that film. I know, and and you only found one reel of it, though. You you found the first reel, uh-huh. but... which which was just useless. <laughs> yes, just useless. And uh, when I told Clint, he was not he was <laughs> not happy, not you know, happy. <laughs> but uh, you know, I told him of a contingency plan. <laughs> we're going to show the DVD. <laughs> and and uh, 
back then, they, I, I don't think he's ever seen a DVD projection before, certainly not on a big screen. And uh, I walked him over to the cinema where everyone was already seated and the show had already started and there was a porthole going into the um, where the audience is that we could see through there. And Clint brightened up. He said, that DVD gives a good projection. <laughs> and, a, and, and he was very proud of that movie. So he went on in, and nobody knew the difference. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I can't think of anybody I'd not want more mad at me or if that's bad <laughs> than Clint Eastwood. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Ah, that's why it was. It, uh, we have a whole uh, administration for the film commission, and uh, I was the chairman of this function, and the. Uh, the administrator tapped me on the shoulder and says, you have to be the one to tell Clint that the movie didn't show up. Oh, my. I said, I have to tell him. So that's what I did. He was in such good humor before that. Oh, yeah. And, and even for the last seconds, we were hoping the film would be found. But when I told him that story, oh, jeez. I, I can see his eyes narrowing now and going. <laughs> and he, he, uh, if, if I were writing it, he'd say he squinted away in disgust. <laughs> and you've got, you, you also met somebody who I really want to talk to you about, um, George Fenneman. Now, for those, yeah. those of you who don't know or don't recognize the name, George Fenneman, he was uh, Groucho, Groucho Marx's side—I want to say sidekick. He was his announcer on the old "You Bet Your Life" TV show. Yeah. But, but you got to know him through the, uh, before, actually before you became a cop. Oh yeah, we all grew up with him. Uh, I was a baby boomer, so uh, everyone in my family watched that show religiously. Because they knew Groucho from the movies, of course, and radio. And, of course, this was uh, primetime TV back then. And, uh, you know, you couldn't help but notice George Fenneman setting up Groucho. And he was the butt of Groucho's jokes. He was, he was, the, perfect, <laughs> uh, he was, the, he was the perfect foil. And so uh, I never knew I'd ever meet him, but he came to Monterey uh for grand opening of a home savings and loan bank. And he was the spokesman for home savings by then. And that's why I said, I'm going to go meet him and shake his hand. Exactly. And was he, how was he? Was he a nice guy? Was he a... Oh, was he, he was so polite. And uh, there were some other people there uh, in line to do the same thing, I'm not sure if they were a film buffs or not, but they were curiosity seekers. And uh, I asked him a couple of questions and about Groucho, and George said, could you uh, hold on, hold on, I'll talk to you after I go through this line. And that's exactly what he did. We spent a good time together, uh, telling me about his growing up in San Francisco and watching the Marx Brothers perform 
getting their uh, scene straight before they shot a couple of those MGMs. That's right. They, uh, people forget they toured on stage before, like, a night at the opera or a day at the races. Yes, yes. Uh, and George told me himself that he went every day because they improvised so much and, and ad-libbed. It was like watching a different show. And uh, it really impressed me that, that George wasn't just a, a one-dimensional announcer. He he had a very career and in in movies and uh but the fact that he was that close to Groucho, I, I wanted to learn as much as I could. Of course. Um, now you and I you now even though I wasn't I was on the East Coast, uh and you're on the West Coast, you grew up around San Francisco. San and uh but you, you and I both idolized probably the same baseball player in Willie Mays. Oh yes. Oh yeah. he was he was the yeah. best baseball player. He, he had it all. He had, uh, uh, but he rose to the occasion in clutch situations. It was his showcase. So uh, I got to see him at his prime. And uh, so he was a, a childhood hero. And uh, so I never, I never uh, forgot Willie, and he's still with us. Thank goodness. You got to get. You got to meet him. I certainly did. It was in 1984, and the Giants put on their very first fantasy camp, where uh, where people like me who were interested in participating, and this is uh, a, a week long of playing baseball and going through drills and hanging with the old New York and San Francisco Giants. This was like a reunion for them. And uh, only one other club has done this before, the Chicago Cubs. So when the San Francisco Giants sponsored this, I said, I'm, I'm going. I'm going. And uh, that's what I did. Now, with Willie, he was kind of a roving instructor. The other Giants acted as coaches, and we were divided up as campers, as they called us. We were divided up into teams and uh, worked out together and played against each other in the afternoon. But Willie would walk around, and he would uh, do batting practice in the late afternoon with all the other retired Giants, uh, which was quite impressive. But, yeah, Willie talked to me at one point. He came up from behind and uh, if you're interested, <laughs> he said, let me see your hands. I thought, what? Does he want to see my I opened them up. He said, hmm, no calluses. He said, uh, that's what spring training's for, to work on your calluses. Ah. It, it reduces the friction. And, uh, and uh, I don't think they do that anymore because most of them wear gloves. But back in Willie's time... They didn't. So that was just a little something that not too many people would have experienced. You also, some of the people you've met, um, I want to, I'm going to get back to those in a moment, but I want to ask you, why, why did you decide to write the book about your life now? Well, I never thought about it till now. The, uh, and probably the reason is, uh, well, Joan Fontaine was, 
was still alive and Doris Day was still alive. Once they passed away, I started thinking about it. Uh, I wasn't sure if I could put it all together <clears throat> until I, I actually committed myself. And uh, so I started thinking, well, maybe I could tell the story because they told me very confidential things, and I was never going to uh, do that while they were alive, you know, personal aspects of what they were going through, some of it quite traumatic. So uh, it was uh, shortly after they, they passed away that I approached uh, my publisher, who was asking what I was working on, and, and I said, how would you like blah blah, blah, blah told through the the uh, local uh, police officer, the deputy sheriff uh, point of view, and that's kind of a big concept to absorb. At first, it had a good title, and it's a, I think it's a unique perspective for most readers. I agree. To, yeah. uh, to come across these, uh, because I had access to these folks, uh, I responded to their calls professionally, and over a period of time, it's like any other friendship. It's not doesn't blast off at first, but over a period of time, there's numerous interactions, and uh, they came to uh, you know call on me, and uh, and for shared. Uh, Reasons uh, they were all involved in nonprofit organizations. Now, Doris, you mentioned Doris Day, and you got to you got to know her pretty well, and also her son Terry Melcher. Oh, especially and, Terry, yeah, yeah, especially. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. He he died at a relatively young age, I believe. Sixty-two was a darn shame, and uh, Terry was a. He was quite a talent. I've never seen anyone that could generate a, a interest with one phone call. At, whenever I was over at the house, the phone would ring constantly. And uh, it was important people. You know, they wanted Terry's input. And uh, like I say, he would just go about it with one phone call and things would fall like dominoes. Do you think he uh, did he have, did he meet Charles Manson? Is that is that the story that that Manson was mad at him and was looking for him the night that they that they killed the Sharon Tate and and her friends? Yeah, that's that's a basic story that uh, he went out to the Manson ranch. Uh, he was a a big executive at, at Capitol Records by this time, so. Uh, he only followed through because one of the Beach Boys sloughed it off on him to check out his musical talent, quote-unquote. And Terry told me it was horrible. It was, it was filthy. He wanted to get the hell out of there, but he wanted to appease them, too. So he said, we'll have to think about, we'll have to think about a uh, contract for an album. Well... Never got back to him, and that's what angered Manson. Uh, we won't go into into the details. Of course. But, um, but here's the thing. Terry Melcher had to testify in court 
against Manson with with Melters doing that uh, stare at him throughout oh. the trial. Manson staring at Melcher, yeah. Yeah, that's very unnerving, as you can imagine. And Manson had a death list, which included Doris. <laughs> so they're, um, they moved up the Carmel Valley. Yeah, they they got they got out of the uh, out of the down well I guess Los Angeles area after that. Mm-hmm. You you also mentioned Joan Fontaine, and what struck me about your relationship with Joan Fontaine is that she said she wanted you to come over to her house after she died. Yes, uh, they, they she did have a rivalry with her sister uh, Olivia uh, um, Olivia De Havilland, and. Uh, who was living in France at the time. And they're both elderly ladies, but uh, she wanted to include me uh, on her attorney's list uh, for somehow getting involved with the estate. And it's simple as she didn't want her sister to come and steal things out of the house that belonged to her mother. And I thought it was ridiculous, so but I kept my mouth shut. And I talked to the attorney afterwards, and he said, "Oh, we we know we're we're just appeasing her at this point." <laughs> so, so uh, she took me out to lunch and, and uh, broke the news to me that she wanted me in her uh, in her uh, uh, her will, and that I would supervise the exchange of uh, property and, during the administration. And I try to tell her. That's what the sheriff's department does for anyone and the uh, public administrators. And uh, we'll seal it up and make sure no one goes in there. But um, when she did die, I, I called her. I, I maintained contact with her as a friend for many years. And like I say, when she did die, I, I called the phone, the house phone, and someone picked up who was helping out. I said, it's all under control. I said, that's good enough for me. All right. Well, I'm glad it worked out. Um, now, also, you you had some information about George Reeves. George Reeves, for those of you who are unfamiliar with that name, he was the man who, actor, who played uh, Superman on TV back in the 50s. And you had information, and you also had a, had a friendship with Phyllis Coates. Who yes. is still, who's still alive. Uh, she played Lois Lane on the first year of the Superman TV show. Absolutely. And, and uh, Phyllis was another one where she lived on the peninsula. And I was introduced to her by Stan Laurel's daughter, Lois Laurel Haas. <clears throat> and we used to have a banquet every year for um, our uh Society, our Laurel and Hardy uh, um, Sons of the Desert Society. So we would uh, annually invite these um, important people and and uh, have a great party. So with Phyllis Coates, you know, it was just inevitable. She always gets bombarded about George Reeves, and I know all the stories, all the theories, but uh, she wasn't there at his death, and nor did she want to be uh, knowledgeable about uh, 
the determination of his death. Jesus went along thinking uh, whatever uh, Hollywood rumors were putting out, put up with it. But you you said some things in your book, and I don't want to give away anything in your book because I want people to buy the book, okay? Mm -hmm, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. But the uh, you 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 know some things about his death, the, the manner of death, which I didn't know, um, which I which I was reading in the book, and is that is that because you were like a, a deputy coroner, I believe, is what you said you were. Yes, at a certain point in my career, I was um, I was a deputy field coroner. And, uh, you know, you can imagine what that entails. But uh, uh, the county put together a seminar for death investigators from all the agencies. And uh, the FBI put it on. They have a, a roving teachers who specialized in death investigation from every aspect. And uh, so as, as a course, as part of their course, they, of course, uh, uh, highlighted what occurs when celebrities all of a sudden die, what kicks in uh, from, the, from the media standpoint to uh, the biological results, and it is quite complicated. Yes, I mean, I got that, I got that impression from the book, but, so, um, but, uh, you also, when you got to, you got to, uh, witness a very, I guess you might want to say inebriated Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. And they called you into, they called you in to let them know that they couldn't drink anymore. Is that what it was? Well, that was, I was relating a, a story when I, I, all those years I worked the, uh, the Crosby and AT&T Pro-Am Golf in Pebble Beach. And uh, so we, we heard stories that from this tournament started in 1948. And from the get-go, Bing would invite his celebrity friends, and, and uh, each year got bigger and bigger and bigger. So the, the story I relayed was when I heard, and I researched a little bit in the old newspapers, was from 1964, before my time. Uh. But if you're... <laughs> <laughs> I love the stories I put it in as uh, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, the, you know, the Rat Pack guys, <clears throat> and they were participants. And uh, as one night after a heavy night of drinking, they're hungry. Well, this was everything closes down in Pebble Beach at night. It's not the city, so uh, Frank went into the front desk, banged on it, demanded service, and uh, so the ma they called the, the manager. He was uh, <laughs> he came on in and couldn't appease him, and uh, so. Uh, he suggested they go back to the room and he called his boss, the boss. So he brought a magnum of champagne <laughs> to his room because there was no one in the kitchen. And, and, and Frank said, he didn't want the champagne. He wanted 
food, so he slugged the guy. <laughs> and, 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 and the paper at the time says, uh, Sinatra wants snack, settles for a smack. And that was, I loved that. So I, I, I thought it was completely relevant uh, for the book. Well, Bill, it's been great talking to you. Uh, the book is Hollywood on Monterey, Chronicles of a Cop. It's published by Bear Manor Media. Bill Kassara is the author. And, Bill, thank you again for being on the show tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for asking. Bill Kassara is the author of Edgar Kennedy, Master of the Slow Burn, Vernon Dent, Stooge Heavy, Ted Healy, Nobody Stooge, and co-author of Henry Brandon, King of the Bogeymen. They're all published by Bear Manor Media. And you can find out more about Hollywood in Monterey at bearmanormedia.com. Until next time, I'm Jim Juno, and this has been The Juno Files.